You're listening to episode 23 of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, TFMR, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who've walked this path before me. This episode is a special conversation with my husband, Hunter, as we check in with each other halfway through our current experience of pregnancy after loss. We talk about the differences between this pregnancy and our first pregnancy with Ellis, the significant milestones we've experienced so far during this pregnancy, the fears we still have, what we've learned, and what we're looking forward to about the last trimester and giving birth. If you've been enjoying this podcast, it would mean so much if you'd take two minutes to leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Ratings and reviews help boost the podcast and enable new listeners to find it more easily. One listener, Jules Reidner, wrote in her recent review, Taylor does such an amazing job sharing her story and relating to others in this podcast. She is vulnerable, real, and makes you feel like you're her best friend. If you've experienced loss of any kind, Taylor's voice and outlook will comfort you and give you hope that you will again feel whole. Thank you so much, Jules. Another thing you can do to support this podcast is to purchase one of my day-by-day rainbow lapel pins from my website, taylorashleybates.com. For me, rainbows have become a symbol of hope through my journey of pregnancy loss and grief. The pen not only symbolizes my hope for a rainbow baby, but also my hope in something greater, that I am taken care of, even when it seems like everything is going wrong. The pen serves as a wearable reminder for you or a loved one to take things day by day through pregnancy loss, trying to conceive, pregnancy after loss, or any other difficult situation, like a pandemic. You can get 10% off by purchasing one for you and a friend with discount code FRIEND10. All right, here's the episode. So I have my husband Hunter here on the podcast today. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to have him back because it's been, um, the fall was the last time we did a podcast episode together, so. Before we were pregnant, or we were going through the preparing for IVF, right? Right, we were doing our egg retrieval. Yeah. So that was about nine months ago. Lots changed since then. A lot has changed since then. In our world and in the world at large. Yes, indeed. So we're about a little over halfway through our current pregnancy, and I thought it would be good to bring you back in and talk about where we're both at and how you're how you're feeling, ask each other questions, because a lot of times I feel like oftentimes fathers get left out of conversations like this, and so I think it's good to have you present in these conversations and not just my perspective. So I'll start by asking you a question. What do you feel like are the differences for you between this pregnancy and our first pregnancy with Ellis? I am more in tune with, I think, each step of, of your um, kind of progression and, and I think listening to the updates of, of how big the baby is each day and how he's developing and I think just being more conscious of his life within you right now and taking that, not taking that for granted, um, it's, it's been a big difference and, you know, really enjoying getting to feel him kick. Uh, what would you say you, well, you can answer that question. And then also just what, what have been like the biggest milestones in this pregnancy for you so far? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in response to how this pregnancy is different, my answer is really similar to yours. I felt like even though I was more perhaps in tune with like the baby's 
with Ellis's growth in that pregnancy, um, I wasn't as aware that, you know, his life was already happening. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't as present and I was just doing a lot of planning and looking forward and thinking about what life would be like when he was born, but not really living as much in the present moment. I think part of that too is right now, not only we have the experience of pregnancy loss to inform this pregnancy, but we also have a pandemic. So I think that that has helped me to be even more present because we're both at home and we're not seeing anyone else. We're not doing anything else. We don't really have like the normal daily kind of distractions isn't the right word, but yeah. And so it's, it's easier to be present and just like focus on the little moments. And that's been really special. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is the biggest contrast for me too, is just the being present, being more present with this baby and trying to, I mean, I'm definitely still thinking about the future and like, what it's going to be like when he's born and preparing for that, but trying to be present a lot too. Cause my inclination is to want to like zoom forward at this point and kind of skip past the scary part of the pregnancy for me, which was the beginning when we had a miscarriage before. And then now it'll be, you know, week 32 when we had our stillbirth. So I I'm anticipating that already. I kind of feel it like encroaching. Um, and so I, I want to stay present through that and not just like have that tendency to want to fast forward. And so the, the other question was what have been the biggest milestones in this pregnancy for you? I think, um, well, just finding out that we were pregnant again, Mm -hmm was a huge one because I had no idea that, um, it was going to be so hard for us to get pregnant again. And I was thinking about this the other day, how it's been, it was a year and a half from when we had, from when we gave birth to Ellis, it was a year and a half that we actually got pregnant with this baby. So we did have a miscarriage in between there and several chemical pregnancies, but... Especially after the first round of IVF didn't... Right. Wasn't successful. That was kind of a blow. Yeah. Just, um, especially when you hear, like, that we had 80% chance of success. So, yeah, just getting pregnant, that felt like a huge win. And essentially, we'd been trying to get pregnant for, like the length of a preg- another pregnancy. So it just, it felt almost like a whole, like another birth process just to like actually get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then the next milestone for me was like that first ultrasound, mm-hmm. which we had at, I think, was it six weeks? Sounds right. Yeah. Somewhere around there with mm-hmm. our fertility clinic. And, um, I remember just, having a lot of anticipation for that appointment and like because with our miscarriage the first ultrasound we didn't see a heartbeat and it you know Mm. it was really devastating and so I was just having kind of reliving that trauma and and it, it had been over a year and a half or so since I had seen a heartbeat on an ultrasound which was Ellis's heartbeat so to see that first um, image of mm-hmm. his little flickering heart and be able to hear it was like huge. And I cried in that appointment and it was just really special. And, um, so that was definitely the next milestone. And then I felt like that first part of the pregnancy was so intense because we were essentially still in the IVF process. Like we were doing, you were giving me daily progesterone shots and I was doing daily blood thinner shots to, um, and taking oral medications. So it just felt like really intense to kind of maintain the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And then we had weekly ultrasound appointments. And at that point, the pandemic COVID-19 had just really kind of come to awareness in Texas and the U S. So 
that was a weird time. It was like, by the time, you know, we hit 10 weeks and graduated from our fertility clinic, they were having to clear out the clinic whenever we had appointments that Mm -hmm. you could be there with me, which was really generous of them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that time was just intense because it was like these weekly appointments, the pandemic was starting to pick up. And so there was that kind of anxiety and unknowns. And then, yeah, every, every ultrasound appointment, I would kind of have this buildup of a little bit of anxiety of like, how's the, you know, is the baby still going to be doing okay? Um, and then I would have this huge release after the appointment, after it went well, and we got to see that he was okay. So, yeah, I think the next milestone was graduating from the fertility clinic mm-hmm. at 10 weeks. That felt really huge. And then two weeks later, about 12 weeks, I got to stop all my medications. So no more shots, which was another big milestone. And then it felt like we were just kind of having like a normal pregnancy again Mm -hmm. because we didn't have to do any medications. And then we moved to ultrasounds once a month. And I was going to the ultrasounds by myself at that point, which that was maybe the next big milestone was like going to the first ultrasound appointment by myself without you Mm. that felt well surprisingly not as scary as I would have anticipated maybe because we'd already had so many appointments that reassured us that everything was looking good Mm -hmm. but um I had a lot of fear before this pregnancy of like being alone at an appointment again Mm. because I was alone you were out of town when I went to the hospital and realized Alice didn't have a heartbeat. So yeah, that was a big deal to have to go to the appointments by myself because of COVID. But you did drive me to that appointment and you sat mm-hmm. in the car, which was really sweet. Yeah, ever since then, it just feels like it's been kind of this smooth sailing. Like the second trimester has been so easy. I got a lot of my energy back. I had a super fatigue during the first trimester and We've just both been at home together and the baby started to kick at around 15 weeks. Um, or at least I started to feel him kick at around 15 weeks, which that was maybe the next big milestone mm-hmm. was when we could both start to feel him. And mm-hmm. that I think really changed our relationship with him mm-hmm. and took it to the next level. And um, we've started like talking to him more and just playing music. Yeah. Yeah. Like recognizing that he's this third physical presence with us now all the time. Um, Fourth, if you include Zelda, our dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I guess, is that... Yeah. Those are probably all the milestones up until this point. Yeah. I feel like the next big milestone will be 24 weeks, which mm. is in about a week. Mm. So, and that's viability. So, in my mind, that's like a big milestone because if the baby were to be born prematurely he would have a very good chance of survival i think those are things that bereaved parents think about maybe like differently than they they would have with their first pregnancies or pregnancies before you know the loss because i certainly didn't think about those things as much as i do now and so to get to that point of viability it feels like a big deal and it's something i've been looking forward to have it written on my calendar. So I've definitely noticed you, like you said, the progression through through those different milestones. It feels like at each point you've had some of the weight lifted and it was really special to see you cry those tears of joy at the first uh, appointment where we heard his heartbeat and, you know, you, you were just overcome with emotion and that was really beautiful. And it was meaningful to me too, just because, like I said, this being the second round of our IVF cycle, I had kind of had that first blow. And so I didn't want to get my hopes up too much. And so when we heard the heartbeat, it was, it was like, okay, that's, you know, we passed that. It's, it has a heart and it's, yeah, beating. And that's, and we can hear it. That's really special. And then, like you said, uh, you know, at first I know you had some anxiety about going to those appointments and now, you know, you're going regularly 
And even though I can't go with you, you, you're not building it up with anxiety anymore before. And so that's really great to see. But I, I also, I'm sure that there are, you know, fears there and maybe it's important or helpful to name, like, what are the fears that you still have at this point or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, the fears are more, um, not so acute like they were in the beginning where it was like, you know, every, every day I was wondering or just with, like you said, the appointments, that kind of acute anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now it's more a projection into the future of like the fear of the third trimester mm-hmm. and, um, the 30 it's more like vague kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting cause I have transitioned into this point where I feel really comfortable making statements like when the baby is born and Mm -hmm. when the baby's here Mm -hmm. and planning for a future with him. And it's not like if he's born or if he's here. Even though we know better than most people that that's not like a guarantee we can't, but it's, yeah. but I think it's maybe about hope or like, like we're just like willing to wish for that outcome, like put that, that is the kind of positive thing that we're hoping for the outcome. Yep. And, um, but yeah, I still will have those fearful moments or now that he's kicking throughout the day. Like, you know, I feel him when we wake up and then at various points throughout the day and then at night when I'm going to bed. Um, and so there are those moments where, where I'm not feeling him, where And I know, like, that's completely normal. He's not supposed to be kicking literally every moment of the day. There are a lot of the times he's asleep or or whatever. Um, But that is definitely a trigger I've noticed already that's starting to creep in of, like, oh, wait, I can't feel him right now. How do I know that he's okay? Mm -hmm. And that's just because I lived that before with Ellis where... I noticed him stop moving and then it, it was affirmed with the reality that he was dead. Right. So that fear is there too of like when I don't feel movement and it's not every time because mm-hmm. then I would feel like a crazy person, mm-hmm. but it's, it definitely creeps in mm-hmm. and I have to just kind of set that thought aside. Are you doing kick counting? Is that what it's? Not yet. Um, my doctor recommended that I start in the third trimester, so at 28 weeks. Mm-hmm. But I've also read that you can start it at 26 weeks. And really, I think it's more about like getting to the time when the baby is kicking more on a regular schedule, which he's getting close to, but um, I can see how that's important. Like it needs to be more consistent or mm-hmm. else you could potentially have you know, a freak out moment that's unnecessary right now because it's still a little bit early. So how does that work? I don't really, I don't really, uh, understand the concept. So, um, I don't want to get this wrong, but there are several resources. Um, like there's a website called kicks count. There's several organizations that promote kick counting and they have, um, detailed resources on their websites, but my basic understanding is that you identify like a certain window of time. I don't know if it has to be the same every day, but I I think it Mm -hmm. might need to be. Um, and you count, I think 10 kicks or movements and you see it like, I think it's supposed to be within at least a two hour window. Hmm. And since I haven't started doing it yet, I can't, I don't want to say that that's like the right way to do it Mm because I'm not sure yet. But um, generally speaking, I think that's kind of how it works. And I've actually already downloaded, there's several apps that are free. And I found one that was like 99 cents that connects to your, if you have an Apple watch. And so that, I feel like that'll make it easier because it, it'll send you a notification like, hey, today is the time to do your kick counting. And then you can just tap the little button on your, on your Apple watch and it'll automatically log the kick counts. So yeah, if you're a techie person, there are ways to kind of utilize tech to help you out. And I've also seen kicks count 
org, I think, um, which, whichever is the UK organization, they have these more uh, analog bracelets that you can get huh. that are, it's just like a little rubber bracelet huh. and they come in different colors. They even have a rainbow one and um, it has the numbers one through 10 on the bracelet and a little plastic window piece. I don't know if that makes sense, but you kind of shift the window gotcha. along the band and so it's an analog way to check the counts throughout the day. So yeah, that that's something that I had come across just like, you know, in my like reading online or, or various baby apps that I was following with Ellis's pregnancy, but I was never encouraged to actually do it. Like my, the midwives I was seeing never said, hey, you should start kid counting now. And I understand from these other organizations that they've really done campaigns like in their um, local communities to increase kick counting and they've had a significant impact on reducing the stillbirth rate in their areas and so I know that huh. there is power in that and I wish that um, the United States as a whole would take you know kind of embrace that somehow as like a campaign because basically it's just it's as simple as educating um, caregivers and telling them, Hey, at this point, third trimester, advise your patients to start kick counting. It's so simple. It's literally a free thing that you can do and it can save babies' lives. So why wouldn't you do it? And save parents from that, from that, uh, you know, suffering of, of losing a baby. Absolutely. And, and the guilt of like thinking mm -hmm. there was right. something I could have done because once I figured out like, yeah, I mean, we'll never know exactly what happened with Ellis, but in my mind, I still have those thoughts of like, what if I had been kick counting? Could I have saved him? Uh -huh. um, and I'll never know, but I know that there are a lot of babies that have been saved by kick counting where the mom recognizes early a lack of movement and goes into the hospital and they, they end up inducing or doing a C-section. So yeah, that's definitely something that um, is... I, th I think it's important and I'll be doing in about a month mm -hmm. consistently. Um, but I also don't want it to become something that's like this obsessive compulsive thing. So that'll be kind of the trick is like finding balance in that and not feeling a need to like kick count all day long. Um, which I think I'll be okay with. Yeah. So we were talking about fears. So yeah, just the obvious fear of like, is this baby going to be stillborn? Mm -hmm. Because we don't know why Ellis was stillborn, which almost mm -hmm. makes this scarier because it's like this vague threat. Mm -hmm. Whereas and, if, and like because we've had that in the past, just statistically we're more likely to, you know, yeah. and it's very, it's like, is that really accurate for our, for the description of our, right? you know, like, because we don't have any explanation, I, it could have just been a random thing and we're, right. we're not, you know, we're just as likely to have a normal pregnancy as other right. parents, but I don't know, is, is, or is it, is there some underlying issue right. that we don't know about? And, yeah. Yeah. But it just feels like we've had every test under the moon. Some of them have been tested multiple times by different doctors. And so at a certain point you just have to trust and kind of surrender but yeah, it, in my mind, I don't know which one would, if it would be any easier if we had a diagnosis for Ellis's stillbirth, like, mm -hmm. oh, he died because of a cord accident. Then I'd probably just be really freaking worried about mm -hmm. a cord accident happening. Mm -hmm. Or if it was some kind of like blood clotting disorder, you know, I'd be worried about having another blood clot. So I don't know if it would help or not. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that's for sure. The fear is just like, we don't know what caused it, and therefore it could happen again, hypothetically, even though it's a, it's like a 0.2% chance that it would happen again. But our doctor, um, our OB, said last week that she wants to induce at 37 weeks, even though the specialist we had talked about 38 weeks. So she said she had another patient who'd given, who'd had a stillbirth at 32 weeks in a previous pregnancy also, and she recently was induced at 37 weeks. She, the doctor said 37 weeks is the baby is fully um, grown and can be born safely at that time. So my thought is like, 
yeah, like as soon as we can, let's get him out. <laughs> Even though that might seem irrational to some people, like that he he would be safer, like spending a few weeks more in my belly and growing. It's like, that's kind of just how the loss has impacted my mind is like he's safer outside of my body than inside of my body, which I know is a common thought. Yeah. I mean, it. I think it's more... To me, it's just like, you know, if he's viable and we can bring him into the world, then let's do that because there's, yeah, like you said, there's more that we can't control, you know, within the womb. So I, I totally get that. Yeah. So we're here in, in mid-July 2020, and so we're in the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I know another fear that we had talked about was um, that you've kind of learned that we, you probably won't be able to have anybody else with us in the hospital for um, the childbirth or, or the C-section. Right? You know? So do you want to elaborate on that or and how, how any COVID-related fears? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's just for sure a fear that I will somehow contract the virus mm -hmm. even though we're being very careful and we're pretty much for the most part not we're not going out we're not seeing people um, yeah, and there was that shocking statistic that you told me about that i think this was in san antonio right the the where doctors uh, had reported that 30 percent of pregnant women coming in for to give birth. They're, they're going to labor tested positive for coronavirus right and I guess they were asymptomatic which is a good thing but just kind of shocking that it was 30 percent were yeah. positive and the CDC has put out studies that show well it's weird because I feel like a lot of the information is still the data is still kind of like hard to interpret and everything I've read is sort of like it's not concrete but in general, it seems like pregnant women are more susceptible to contracting the virus because your immune system is mm -hmm. down a little bit when you're pregnant mm -hmm. just by default. And then there was the CDC had put out a study that said pregnant women compared to non-pregnant women were 50% more likely to end up in the hospital if they contract COVID and 70% more likely to need a ventilator um, compared to women, non-pregnant women who contract the virus. So, mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean like 70% of pregnant women who get the virus are going to need a ventilator. It's just that... 70% more likely. Yeah. So compared to the statistic of women, right. non-pregnant women who need a ventilator, it's 70% more mm -hmm. than that statistic. So... I, I didn't, they didn't actually say what the statistic was. Right, like, like what how what percent of pregnant women are actually. Right. Yeah. So that's where it's a little bit like hard to interpret, like what actually is mm -hmm. the impact of that for me. Right. But needless to say, we're just being very cautious. Mm -hmm. and so we, we had loosened up a little bit in May, I guess, like after Memorial Day, just like everyone did because... The governor here lifted all of the restrictions, and so it felt like, okay, maybe things are, you know, getting better, and then a couple of weeks later, it just, like, we had this huge surge, and ever since then, it's just continued to kind of explode with cases here in Texas, mm -hmm. so we, yeah, kind of, like, went back into our hidey hole again, but for some reason, like, I'm not... I am glad that that's not like this huge anxiety inducing fear in me of, of getting the virus. Like I know it's a very real possibility, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm not thinking too much about it. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, that's when one of my friends, doctors told her, you know, it, it's going to be worse for you to stress out all the time about potentially getting the virus and actually stress lowers your immune system. Mm -hmm. So that's not going to be good for you ultimately. Mm -hmm. But, and she said, if you do get the virus, we'll, we'll treat you accordingly. And most people who get it at this point aren't 
either are asymptomatic or are, have mild symptoms. So mm-hmm. when you just kind of like, I guess that's what I've been focusing on is just like take a deep breath and don't get overwhelmed by the media hype. Not that it's hype. I know that everything is very real, but it's easy to feel like it's this to panic or something. Yeah, yeah. to panic. Yeah. But I definitely have had to grieve that reality that, um, our birth experience won't be sort of the redemptive birth that I had hoped for. Um, but I, I mean, I think it, in a certain sense, we will still have that, yes, that possibility and that. So I had a, a, another lost mom on Instagram who is really sweet. I just love the community on Instagram, but she's been reaching out and checking on me and, um, she recently had her rainbow baby during COVID. Mm-hmm. And so she, I was telling her those, you know, disappointments of just like mm-hmm. that we won't be able to have family with us and all that kind of stuff. And she said that she and her husband definitely had the same, went through those same emotions, but ultimately it ended up being a really special time for just the two of them or, or the three of them, their mm-hmm. new baby. And she said it was, the time at the hospital was very quiet and peaceful. And so I've decided that that's kind of the new image I want to start cultivating Mm -hmm. in my mind is like, instead of just constantly thinking about the negative, like, Oh, it's not going to be this other image that I had just create this new image Mm -hmm. and start to imagine ways that we can make that really special. And I think there's also something kind of poetic about, you know, we, we bring these babies into the world. We conceive them with just the two of us, mm. although not not with IVF. There were lots of people involved. But contrastingly, because this baby was conceived with so many people involved, I think it'll be really special just to have the two of us at the birth. Well, and obviously, you know, the doctor and the nurses. But yeah. Um, so I think that that'll be still a very special time and that perhaps compared to the average family right now having a baby during COVID, you know, we have a different perspective being parents who had a baby die because ultimately all I want is a healthy baby. So if Mm -hmm. I get that, I'll be so thrilled Mm -hmm. and I can let go of all the other things like, you know, having, having the birth look a certain way or having a doula there, having Mm -hmm. a birth photographer, or even having a baby shower the normal way that people do. Because once you've lost a baby, none of that is normal ever again anyways. Mm. Um, And it's really, I think the whole process is really primarily between the two of us, like this whole walk that we've been on. And we've had so much great support from our friends and family, but I think I will look forward to having that be more of a private thing I think I I like your idea about that kind of finding a new image and and finding gratitude in that so my other question was now knowing that I'll be the only person there with you in the hospital for our c-section I was reminded today of a question um, on a questionnaire that we were asked uh, which was who is your ideal birth partner? And I think it gave examples like George Clooney or Beyonce or (laughs) Superman or what, you know, what kind of support will you be looking for in that moment? So I want to ask that to you. Yeah. Well, that is is such a funny question because I wouldn't want anyone. I would much rather have you than George (laughs) Clooney. That'd be so awkward. Well, is it George Clooney from ER? (laughs) Because... Wasn't that what he was in? Yeah. 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 Um, I'd still rather have you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think now, um, in a lot of ways, in my mind, it's more of an opportunity for you to really shine and step into that role as dad. Instead of, like, if we would have had our doula there with us, Mm. she might have been kind of taking charge Whereas now you'll have to really like fulfill that role too of like a doula. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I won't be giving, I won't be having a vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. um, So I won't be laboring and stuff. But 
I still think C-section is absolutely still birth. And so in some ways, because we've already had one C-section, I'm a lot more comfortable with that idea compared to if we were giving um, birth vaginally. Even though at the beginning of the pregnancy, that's something I really debated. And you can go listen to other um, to earlier podcast episodes where I talk about that and why we ended up deciding ultimately on a scheduled C-section. Mm-hmm. But now that we have decided on a scheduled C-section, I think for so many reasons it feels like the right decision, not only medically, but because of COVID. Like, mm-hmm. Because there's so many unknowns with how the hospital will be in the fall and what that situation will look like. It just feels um, like it's taking away a lot of unknowns by just having it scheduled. Like, this is our day. We'll be with our doctor. So, yeah, I think because we've both had a C-section before, too, that eliminates a lot of fears because I generally know what to expect. And our our first C-section with Ellis was not an emergency. So I think it'll be similar in that sense because essentially I've already had a a scheduled C-section. And... So yeah, like what I would want from you as my birth partner is basically just what you did the first time, <laughs> just like being there by my side and comforting me and looking into my eyes while they're doing the procedure. Because I remember... I can do that. Yeah, like it was... Your dad, your dad has been encouraging me to look behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah, don't... I don't know. <laughs> don't be persuaded. I, th- I would not advise <laughs> that. But um, I'd rather have you looking into my eyes because if I see your face when you look over the curtains, that might freak me out. Um, but then I know in general, the practice is usually that once they take the baby out, they, I think they cut the cord and then they hand him to you first. Mm-hmm. I think the dad actually gets to hold him first. Mm-hmm. So that seems really special too, that you'll get to like, be the first one to hold him mm. and then I don't exactly know what happens after that but yeah and then I also know most likely we'll get to play like a song or music during mm. the surgery oh, nice. and so since you're a sound of music I think it'd be nice if you picked out what music is played during that time yeah that'll be I guess I mean I would just want to play something you would be comfortable with but I'm like ambient music or would you feel like I think so I th- I feel like you have a good read of what I would want and then yeah I know like just in recovery from the c-section that um last time there was some issues with my pain medications mm-hmm. there was a delay and I started to feel physical pain um, and so you were a good advocate for like helping to communicate to the nurses and trying to make me comfortable and hopefully that I also won't felt again. powerless to some extent because yeah they would you know we we told them several times but it was like oh we we have to wait for the doctor and the doctor has to sign off before they can approve the pain medication which seems like a lot of red tape for yeah you know oh a woman that's in pain and, yeah but well, I can do all that. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think just like finding other ways to make that time special with the two of us and, or the three of us and mm-hmm. being present. And so, yeah, maybe there are little things that we can do to just make that time special because we'll be in the hospital for a few days in recovery. So, yeah, I think just like helping me to stay present and <laughs> calm, which you're really good at because you're just naturally peaceful calm personality mm-hmm. and also inc- finding ways to include Ellis I think mm. it's important because I know our doula when it was still a possibility that she was going to be there with us had talked about she would help us with ways to make Ellis feel like a part of the birth and so you know that's something that I would like for us to do is to include big brother and like also just make sure that the way people talk to us, either hospital staff or, um, you know, family sending messages. I want this to be our second child. Like, 
-hmm. You know, this is not our first baby. Mm -hmm. Um, We have given birth to another baby. So Mm -hmm. um, I want that to be really clear. And I know you can't expect perfection from people, but if we can communicate that out, and since you'll be more mobile than Mm -hmm. me or just my representative, if you could somehow just help that to be known with people and maybe we can even like i don't know put a sign on the door or something that says Mm -hmm. like second born yeah yeah something like that so that's important to me too and just communicating that to our families that this isn't our first baby Mm -hmm. just acknowledging ellis yeah yeah what do you hope to have be a part of our birth experience or or how do you what it maybe what are your fears or anxieties and then like what are you looking forward to well you know there are the obvious fears and anxieties but I but I really can't say that I'm you know all that like that that's really on my mind at all but I would say I don't have you know I don't have the fears associated with with the first time like we did you know I mean there was you know, now we've been there and we've, I think also having gone through what we went through with Ellis, you know, is something that we could have never imagined that, uh, before, um, the stillbirth and maybe couldn't have imagined that we would get through it if we had gone, you know, had that happened to us. But, you know, on the other side now, I think, having gone through that, which is, you know, I think about the worst outcome that we could have gone through, right? So that we know we can, we can live through that. So I think even those fears aren't as powerful. So, and, uh, you know, having gone through it before already, like I kind of know the routine now. And um, I think it, it sounds like we're going to have a better experience. We're expecting a better experience. Like the accommodations are going to be better. And we're, we're going to, it's, hospital. what is the, uh, name for this type of C-section? Like, Oh, it's a family centered cesarean. So, which we did have kind of with Ellis, like mm-hmm. there were certain elements that they mm-hmm. did of a family centered cesarean, but basically just trying to make it as similar to, a vaginal birth experience as possible so like letting you have skin to skin with the baby pretty shortly after Mm -hmm. the procedure if everything's okay um i know i got to hold ellis in the operating room Mm -hmm. um and and then this time like like i said we can play music or um just kind of make it feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. um and less I mean, you can't hide the fact that you're in an operating room. It's going to be bright lights and, mm-hmm. like, lots of machines and stuff. But, yeah, it's just a more gen- – I think they also call it a gentle cesarean. Mm-hmm. And you can also choose to have, like, a clear um, sheet between mm-hmm. you. I don't think I want that mm-hmm. <laughs> personally. We but... can talk offline about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I do kind of, as a side note, I have been – I guess you could say meditating or, or like being holding kind of like a mindful vision of that moment of like mm-hmm. the baby coming out over the sheet and like them holding him up and hearing him cry for the first time. And it wasn't a clear sheet in the video. <laughs> it wasn't a clear sheet <laughs> in my mind, but no, but um, that's been like a really positive, maybe affirmative, mm-hmm. almost like a visual mantra for me yeah. to focus on is like, that is what we wish for and that every time I kind of spend time imagining it and close my eyes it almost brings me to tears just to like mm-hmm. see that image and I've, it's kind of like I've heard you know athletes will envision like crossing the finish line or whatever it is mm-hmm. winning the game many many times leading up to it and that helps you to actually like see it through when you're in right. the moment and so I've kind of been doing that like just envisioning this successful birth with a healthy baby Mm -hmm. and it it just helps me to cultivate that sense of hope and like confidence too Mm -hmm. even though I know again nothing is guaranteed but that's just been a really positive thing for me to do right yeah so I think 
everything that you mentioned, you know, that, that you hope to be a part of that experience, I think sounds lovely. And I would like to do that too. And so I'm excited about it. Yeah. And yeah, we'll be in a different hospital this time Mm -hmm. with a different doctor, different nurses, everything will be a new experience. And actually the hospital we're at is relatively new compared to the, the one with Ellis was a pretty old hospital. So um, we'll have like this nice birthing suite, you know, if everything goes according to plan. And, and so I think, yeah, just like trying to get excited about those things. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be this new, mm-hmm. fun, exciting time. And it's like 14 weeks away, which is so mm-hmm. crazy. And something tells me that this, this will be, you know, babies born during this pandemic, it's kind of a special thing, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not something I guess that you hope for, but, uh, it'll be something we tell our kids about, I think, and, uh, a a lasting kind of memory. Yeah. And in reality for us, we're so, um, privileged that we are both able to work together at home during this time and have had access to food and groceries and, you know, have all of our needs provided. And basically from the beginning of this pregnancy, almost you've been home with me every single day, mm-hmm. which like I never ever could have imagined that being mm-hmm. possible, but it's been such a blessing in disguise during pregnancy after loss, just to have you with me every day. I think that's also helped with a lot of like anxiety and stuff. Um, Cause otherwise I'd probably be working from home a lot by myself anyways, if it wasn't Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And so I would just be home by myself and I could imagine that that maybe thoughts could creep in more easily. I don't Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. but that's just been a positive part of the pandemic for us is like being able to spend probably this whole pregnancy together every day. And so you're getting to spend so much more time with me, just like the daily experience of being pregnant so I think that might also be like helping you to connect with the baby more Mm -hmm. because with Ellis you were we were both at our full-time jobs in separate places and so you know I was with him all day and and you weren't getting to like experience all those little things Mm -hmm. and then yeah you're most likely going to continue working from home even after the baby is born so Mm -hmm. for a good chunk of time once he's here you'll be here physically too, which will be really special. Right. I have a couple more questions, but, uh, so you've had over 20 different podcast episodes so far with, with different, well, I guess some of them are more, uh, you know, with yourself, but you've, how many people have you interviewed by this point? I think about seven, Mm -hmm. eight, I'm not sure. So from those stories and uh, if you want to include any of your kind of private conversations or what, what have been some of the biggest takeaways that you've had from other um, uh, parents, bereaved parents in this, uh, in the lost community? I think um, the phrase that comes to mind is different pregnancy, different outcome. Mm. That's a common mantra that a lot of bereaved parents cling to during pregnancy after loss and that's been helpful for me too is just like this is not this does not have to be a repeat just because it happened once it's a different pregnancy different outcome and then I think the other biggest thing that comes to mind is just feeling affirmed because it seems like every single person that I've talked to there are multiple parts of their stories that are like the mirror Hmm. our experience and so it just it makes me feel less alone or less like crazy even I know I shouldn't use Mm -hmm. that word but sometimes you do feel crazy or like just grief can really twist your thoughts or, or trauma can twist your thoughts and whenever you know I hear another lost parent talking about um how they you know, would like freak out if they didn't feel the baby move or Mm -hmm. called their doctor a million times or bought a Doppler or just any of these things to kind of like try to soothe that anxiety and that fear and the trauma. 
all of that's affirming because when you're when you're going through it, it can feel really isolating. Mm-hmm. Like you're the only one going through it, or or that you're overreacting or something. And it's also taught me not to judge anyone's reaction or like mm-hmm. response because you know some people really rely on a Doppler. And I actually I talked about early, in an earlier episode how I I bought one and then I returned it. I never used it because for one we had a we have an anterior placenta, which means it's on the front. So I knew it'd be harder to find the heartbeat. And mm-hmm. I knew if I couldn't I find the heartbeat, freak I'd out freak out. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, yeah, just that everyone has their own ways of coping. But for the most part, a lot of the coping mechanisms are very similar. Mm-hmm. And so it just helps me to not feel that isolation or, or just to know there's countless parents who've walked this path before us and we can do this. And... There are probably, I don't know, millions of parents throughout human history who've lost children, lost babies. And so we are absolutely not alone in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just the, the handful of people that I've had the privilege of, you know, interviewing and sharing their stories, it just affirms that, that there's more similarities than there are differences in our experiences and that people get through this. And so we can get through this too. Mm-hmm. That's great. I think a couple things I've noticed from watching um, you go through this process is that the community is maybe bigger than what you and I initially understood. And you've kind of expanded your your introduction to, to include... TFMR, which yeah. is termination for medical reasons. So I've had several, um, well, listeners and actually parents that I've interviewed who Mm -hmm. had that terrible experience of having to terminate for medical reasons, terminate a pregnancy. And, and that was something that was not originally included in my, in the definition. I think I had just pulled the definition of a rainbow baby from Wikipedia or something Mm -hmm. online. And it was, you know, um, a rainbow baby is a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of an infant from natural causes. And I had a really sweet listener who gracefully pointed out to me that, you know, she really appreciated my podcast, but always felt like a little bit left out because she had a termination for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. And she didn't feel like she was included in that definition. And so it made me realize now I know many women who've had that experience and many parents. And so, and a lot of them, that's just a whole another layer of trauma and, um, you know, shame in a lot of ways, like several friends, it's like, they, they don't feel like they can be as open about their loss for fear of being judged understandably. And so I've since changed my opening to include that. And and there might even be other, I hope there are not other things that I'm leaving out or other situations that I'm mm-hmm. leaving out, or I, you know, I hope that's a more inclusive definition. Um, yeah. And another thing I've noticed is just how needed I think what you're doing is and what others uh, who are sharing their stories um, and just how that can really build bridges and, and heal, you know, it's uh we visited some friends who had had a stillbirth about a year after us and we oddly enough going into it we have been through this but we were still kind of felt like friends visiting us after our stillbirth must have felt you know just kind of like well what do we say and it's like well you know (laughs) you just have to share your experience and and it ended up being such a healing and cathartic kind of experience for us. And I think a, a positive experience for them as well. And, and to have visitors who really understood where they were and didn't try to kind of avoid talking about it because that doesn't work, you know. But really, we're, we're just there to, to talk through it all and relate and share that space. I mean, that experience really showed me how these connections are, are just really important. And 
it seems to be, it's a particular type of experience that you go through. It's, I don't think all grief is the same. I mean, this is a particular type of grief. And I think, uh, having people that understand that is really important. And I've also heard so many people say to you, you know, thank you for what you're doing. And I don't mean to toot your horn or anything, but, uh, it's just, you can go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that just says to me that there is really a need for this and for these conversations and, and that there's still too much kind of silence around these issues. So, yeah, I've even found myself, um, I still search the podcast app for other rainbow baby stories and I think it feels like I've exhausted all of them. Like I've listened to all of them that I can find. And I'm just, because that's the experience I'm now going through, I'm hungry for those stories. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of actually surprised that there's not another, you know, similar podcast. There, mm-hmm. there are many other podcasts that focus on loss specifically, but the experience of pregnancy after loss is a whole another unique, you know, mm-hmm. situation. So yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm not even doing enough. Like initially my vision with this podcast is that I would be kind of like reporting or something every week on what each week of pregnancy is like after loss for Mm me. Um, And that's proven to be kind of just a lot to take on for one person who's doing all aspects of the production herself. But anyways, I just, yeah, there, there is still absolutely a need in this space for more conversations, more sharing, more openness. So now, uh, having gone through, you know, I, I know that you can relate to the position of the person that may be listening to the podcast and, you know, has, has experienced loss of a child and hasn't yet found success for that, that pregnancy after loss or is, feeling like it's futile or, you know, like you at sometimes is kind of looking at people getting pregnant all around them and, and, uh, thinking sucks, you know, being envious and, and feeling like, you know, why can't we have this? Like, because you're so aware of that experience and, uh, how has that kind of affected your kind of own peace or like, comfort level socially like with your pregnancy yeah Uh, that's a really good question um because I've been more aware of that um well just from the very beginning of when we announced because we'd been so open about our IVF experience so you know I was documenting it and sharing it publicly you know every step of the way so it felt like we couldn't not share (laughs) that we were pregnant but I did feel that kind of hesitation of like, I want to be celebratory about this, but I'm also aware that so many of the women following me are where we've been of just struggling and wanting to get pregnant again and it's not happening or you're having more losses. And so, you know, from the beginning of this pregnancy, I, I tried, I've tried to acknowledge that tension or that like just, it, it's, it's awkward like Mm -hmm. and I've been on both sides of it now Mm -hmm. of being the person who is you're you're happy for that friend or that person who you're observing who's pregnant but you're also sad for yourself and so I think then you feel bad about that and then you feel bad about that you feel guilty and it just Mm -hmm. it's it can be this whole spiral of like shame and and sad emotions and it just stirs up the grief and um and so I think I've personally learned that there there is no such thing as like duality. Dualities are an illusion. So it's not like I I should be only happy for that person. Mm-hmm. You can hold space for your happiness for them and your like all the other kind of shitty emotions that you're feeling and that's okay. And so one thing I have noticed is that I'm sharing a lot less now that we're pregnant. I'm not making as many social media posts. 
I'm doing on average like one a week kind of doing a journal entry essentially about that week of the pregnancy and sharing of course the podcast episodes that's like down from what like three times a week or two yeah months? yeah, something yeah. Like that. okay I'm just like a lot I was doing a lot more content on Instagram stories and stuff mm-hmm. um sharing our IVF process and so I kind of connected that recently actually of just thinking about I wonder what the root of that is because I hadn't consciously decided I'm going to share less mm-hmm. but I think it is some of that of feeling like feels more respectful or something yeah and almost a little bit of guilt too of like mm-hmm. I have this thing that a lot of people are hoping for and I don't want to like flaunt that or something or, or just because one thing that happened with my pregnancy with Ellis was the week before he was stillborn, I had a, a colleague make this comment in passing that was a sweet comment coming from a good place, but it was just like, Taylor, you just have like the perfect life right now. You know, you're pregnant, like you and Hunter are so happy and you know, y'all, y'all just have a really great life. And I remember feeling so kind of awkward when she said that. And then a week later, life completely crumbles. It's also a very weird thing. I would never say that to somebody because, <laughs> like, you don't know from the outside. Right, right. But nobody but, knows. But, you know, anyway. it's easy for social media to paint that picture. Sure. And so I've been aware of that, too. And actually a lot of the content I've been reading offline, like, um you know, about digital minimalism and stuff. We've talked about that, but just how negative that can be for our mental state of like seeing kind of the best parts of people's lives um, Mm -hmm. and, and not getting that nuance of like what's actually happening day to day or moment to moment. And not only does it affect like observers from the outside, but it also kind of starts to affect the people that are posting the content of like what, what am I posting? And, and it does and it's kind of inauthentic to a certain degree. If you're trying to present a certain, that's a whole other issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, just, I'm definitely sensitive to mm-hmm. a lot of the people who are either listening or following me who I might not know in person and they're, they're hoping for a rainbow baby and actively trying for a rainbow baby or, you know, losing a pregnancy that they thought was going to be their rainbow baby, all those different situations, and I've been in each one of them, so I'm very aware of what that headspace is like. Um, And so, yeah, it's tricky, like, to navigate that. And I actually feel more comfortable sharing in this space on the podcast than I do now on social media for some reason. And maybe it's because I can get more nuanced here and, like, convey emotion better and just hearing my voice is different than like just the character limit on, on Instagram. I can't like really give the full picture. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine that's difficult tension and because that's so much of your professional life right now, it's, uh, it's not as if you're like avoiding talking about it or (laughs) well, and actually I went like two weeks without, really posting anything or even I was like kind of just off Instagram and I had several people reach out and say, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Is the baby okay? So I realized I can't just go silent because there are so many people who are relying on, you know, social media to know that I'm doing okay, like friends Mm -hmm. and family. So yeah, it's like a, there's a lot of things to consider with how I'm presenting my experience and I don't regret at all going public with our experience because again like we talked about earlier I think it's so important to talk about these things and be open and I know the benefits greatly outweigh any negative Mm -hmm. side effects and I trust that there's so many other people out in the online space who are talking about those other situations like whether you're going through IVF or you're trying to conceive you know, there's people who have accounts that are solely focused on that. So, you know, I've, I've noticed that people just, it's like, if you can't handle um, seeing a pregnancy right now because you're not pregnant, you just unfollow that person. I've done that. 
Um, and then, you know, you follow who resonates with you or who right. makes you feel positive and good. So, yeah. Yeah. I have a question for you. Okay. So how do you want to spend our last trimester? In what sense? I mean, I guess to some extent we, we have the constraints of, <laughs> of <laughs> the really. quarantine. So yeah. um, we probably won't do the baby moon thing. Right. Well, that's what I'm, maybe that's what I'm getting at is like, uh-huh. since we can't do a lot of those traditional things like a baby moon, you know, getaway or even a traditional baby shower, like how do you want to cultivate this time? Kind of our, the last bit of time that we have with just the two of us, but in light of the pandemic. <laughs> hmm. It's a good question. This one might need, we might need to think about this and talk about it some more, but I think we can, I mean, just trying to find what are the important things. I think like you've been, we've both been kind of involved with doing some nesting now and kind of getting the house all set up, um, preparing, uh, you know, our physical space for the baby. And I think we've done some work of preparing our kind of other elements of our lives, you know, and like doing we, we, we need to continue our dog training, you know, <laughs> to prepare for a baby. I think we're going to play some, like, audio recording of a, of a crying baby to get <laughs> her comfortable with it. I think we could still do something like a, a baby shower, but but do it virtually or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, what's not to like about that? You get to skip the, <laughs> <laughs> the games and everything. No. Um, okay, we've had, we've been to a couple like drive-by celebrations, yeah. uh, that have been fun. I think we could do something like that. Yeah. Maybe. Other than that, I think just kind of maybe spending more time in reflection and really being present, like we said, for this experience and, and, uh, not taking it for granted. Mm-hmm. I have one more question. Okay. What do you feel like Ellis has taught you about being a parent? Really good question. It's difficult to kind of know where to approach the question because, you know, in one sense, I didn't really get the chance to quote unquote parent Ellis. But in another sense, I think just that, I mean, understanding the the preciousness of, of life and that, you know, it's fleeting, like we said, and think that's that's a big lesson that we both we both took from it you know which makes me want to be the best parent that I can be and the best father I can be so yeah I guess that I touched on everything thanks babe yeah well that we ended up talking for longer than I was thinking but Mm -hmm. I think we talked about a lot of topics that kind of capture this specific time but also like the general experience of what it's like to go through pregnancy after a loss and so I hope that what we've talked about resonates or is helpful to people out there who are listening and we'll probably have maybe one one or two more episodes where you and I both are on together so maybe we can do like one kind of right before the birth and then maybe one after be cool so you can have that to look forward to sounds good okay thanks babe all right i hope this episode was meaningful for you to connect with me you can visit taylorashleybates.com and also find me on instagram please share this podcast with anyone you know who is walking through life after pregnancy loss whether they are trying to conceive currently pregnant or parenting after loss until next time i'm taylor bates Sending you peace and hope for your journey.